Hello and welcome back to the Europlex podcast, the only podcast on your theme that got so giddy with excitement on Sunday that we fainted twice. I'm Ewan Healy and with me, of course, is my very good friend Gabriel Hedengren. Yes, so in this episode, we are once again joined by Tobias Gerhard Schminke, the founder of Europlex, in an effort to contextualize the result of the German elections, that tiny little political event. I'm not sure if you've heard about and discussed over the recent weeks. I know we've seen uh, about as many hot takes in our mentions as we have followers, but we're going to try and stay as as neutral and analytical as possible when discussing the results and the potential coalition governments that might result from it. So stay posted. First, however, here's a little message on how you could support us either by volunteering or by becoming a Europelex patron on Patreon. Do you want to be one of the volunteers that are behind Europlex in this podcast? We are currently on the lookout for an audiovisual editor that can help our podcast and YouTube team create and edit content like what you're hearing right now. But only better, of course, we're trying to improve all the time. If you're interested in joining our team or know someone who would be, please do reach out to us at podcast at europlex.eu. Europlex is run by volunteers. We aren't funded by any big donors and everything we do, including this podcast, is only possible with the help of our supporters. And we want to do more. We started sharing exclusive discussions, special content and more through our Patreon. Access all that from as little as one euro per month. Don't miss out. Support us by becoming a patron on Patreon. So we begin this week with what else but the most important election that has taken place. And that is, of course, the election to the Tinwald, the Parliament of the Isle of Man. Yes, voters in the UK's Crown Dependency voted for their lower house representative in the House of Keys from 12 two-member constituencies across the island using the multiple non-transferable vote electoral system where voters select two candidates in each constituency and the two with the most overall votes are returned to Parliament. It's a variation on plurality at large. The Isle of Man, as discussed in our previous episode, has a mostly non-partisan system with some minor parties contesting elections. The parties that contested the election this time round were the Liberal Van Inn, which was the only party to win representation in the previous parliament, the Manx Labour Party, the island's oldest party, founded in 1918, and the Isle of Man Green Party, contesting its first election since foundation in 2016. Ultimately, the balance between party representatives and independents remained unchanged, as independents took 21 of the 24 seats up for grabs, the same figure as in 2016, with 86% of the vote, though not a particularly helpful figure when they're all independent and can't really be formed together as one big block. The Liberal Van Inn party suffered its worst results since foundation in 2006, falling to 5% of the vote and losing two of its three seats. Meanwhile, the Manx Labour Party had its best election for 20 years, recovering from 2016's wipeout and receiving 5% of the vote. And that's two seats. The greatest disappointment was felt by the Greens, who had hoped to break into Parliament after electing two councillors to the capital of Douglas's council earlier this year, but fell short with just 3% of the vote. The election also saw a record number of women elected to the House of Keys, who now make up 10 of the island's 24 representatives, which is double the number elected in 2016. Prior to this election, no constituency had ever elected two women, so both of their representatives had never been women, but that's happened twice now in two different constituencies on the island. On the 12th of October, members of Parliament will 
will formally elect the island's next chief minister, the head of government, with the decision being taken entirely by the House of Keys for the first time, following a reform which prevents members of the upper house, the Legislative Council, from having a vote. The successful candidate will replace outgoing Chief Minister Howard Quayle, who is standing down after being elected in 2016. Quayle had suffered a stroke just days before the election, but we're happy to report that he is recovering well in hospital and has been discharged. We now go to Iceland, a country that also had elections last weekend, an event that might have got even less attention actually than the Isle of Man, but that obviously doesn't mean it's any less important or consequential for us. We love all elections here equally at Europlex. So the outgoing government uh, of Iceland, led by Katrin Jakobsdottir, is at first glance sort of a strange coalition between the left-wing left-green movement, the centre-right independence party, and the centrist agrarian progressive party. But it proved to be quite a stable government in recent years. And uh, while polling suggested that forming a second such government might be a difficult task, on election night, the governing coalition actually increased its majority in the Althing, which is Iceland's national parliament, rising from 35 seats to 37 out of the 63 in total. More specifically, the Independence Party remained the largest party in Icelandic politics with 16 seats. Its vote share, however, dropped slightly to 24% of the vote. The Prime Minister's left-green movement suffered the worst losses of the governing parties, losing three of its 11 seats. And the Progressive Party rose from eight seats to 13 and finished in second place with 17%, while taking a plurality of the vote in the rural northwest and northeast constituencies. In each of the four other constituencies, the plurality went to the Independence Party. Outside the government parties, three parties tied in fourth place with six seats each. So that's Centre-Left Social Democratic Alliance, the Right-Wing People's Party, and the Pirate Party of Iceland. These results will be a disappointment for the Social Democratic Alliance and the Pirate Party, who might have reasonably hoped to perform better based on recent polling, whereas the People's Party benefited from a late surge in the campaign, finishing well above the 5% threshold for compensatory seats. Following these parties were the centre-right Reform Party, which gained one seat to finish on five, and the centre-right Centre Party, which suffered the greatest losses of any party in these elections, falling from seven seats to three and finishing just above the 5% threshold. Finally, the newcomer left-wing Socialist Party was hoping to enter Parliament for the first time this year, but ultimately fell short of the threshold with 4% of the vote, failing to win any seats at all. Combined with the unexpected levels of success for the Progressive Party, this ensures Iceland's new Parliament will not be quite as fragmented as commentators had at one stage predicted. Now, the election received significant media attention immediately after provisional results were announced for the record-breaking number of women elected to Parliament. 33 of the 63 seats, or 52 were projected to be won by women, which would have made Iceland the first country in Europe to elect a parliament comprising a majority of women, surpassing Sweden's record of 47%. However, subsequent recounts found that in fact only 30 women had been elected, which constitutes 47.6% of parliament. This still marks an increase of 6 from 2017, and now places Iceland slightly ahead of Sweden with the highest proportion of women in any European parliament. But the Nordic nation will have to wait a bit longer before it can make history by electing a female majority parliament, unless another country gets there first. So we'll just have to wait and see for that one. It is, of course, as yet unclear which parties will form the next government, with the independents and progressive parties having the option to replace the green left movement with a party of the centre-right instead. It is, however, very possible that the incumbent government will decide to renew its coalition for another four years. With coalition talks expected to last for at least the coming weeks in Iceland, Europolex will, of course, continue to provide all the updates as and when they happen. So stay tuned. 
And now we move on to the Super Sunday myriad of elections and referenda. And we'll start with the one we're all thinking about and talking about, the one that's living rent-free in everyone's heads. That's right, it's Germany's historic election. Angela Merkel's era has ended with a dramatic shift in Parliament. The House now counts 735 seats, which takes it to not just the largest German Parliament ever elected, but also the largest lower parliament chamber in a democracy in the world. Keen followers of German politics will know that due to the Überhangmandat, the overhang seats in the German parliament, the number of seats can fluctuate from election to election to make sure it is the most proportional as possible. The election winner is the centre-left SPD under Chancellor candidate Olaf Scholz. The Social Democrats came first, winning 25.7% of the votes, which is a rise of 5.2% and a rise of 53 seats up to 206. The centre-right CDU-CSU followed quite closely in second place with 24.1% of the vote, which is actually their worst election result since the creation of the union between the CDU and the CSU after the Second World War, and 8.8 percentage points below their 2017 result. That is a drop of 50 seats in the new parliament, falling to 196. In third place, we see the Greens that are definitely among the big winners of this election. With 14.8%, the party rose by 5.9%. So that's a similar gain, the same way as the uh, Social Democratic Party. And they now have 118 seats, 51 more than the previous parliament, and of course, their record number. That is, of course, bittersweet when the party was hoping for even better than that because they'd been polling first this year. The Liberal FDP was also among the winners of this election, which has interestingly also gained the most first-time voters. This party rose 0.8% overall to 11.5%. The party will now have 92 seats in the new parliament, a rise of 12 on their 2017 results. Meanwhile, the right-wing alternative for Deutschland showed significant losses of 2.3% of the vote and 11 seats, falling down to just over 10% of the vote and 83 seats. The left-wing Linke was also amongst the losers on Saturday night since the party fell below the 5% threshold in a big surprise that not many had expected down to 4.9% with a huge drop of 4.3%. They did however manage to take part in the proportional allocation of seats because they succeeded in winning three uh, first-past-the-post constituency. That means they will have 39 seats in the parliament while they avoided a total collapse. There's still 30 fewer seats than the previous parliament. And finally, the Danish minority party, SS SW managed to win back representation in Parliament with one seat for the first time since 1949. So that was a really fascinating story. And of course, if you want details on everything else that happened in the election, potential coalitions, analysis of what happened and everything, stick around for our chat with Tobias, who's got juicy morsels of good news and bad news to share with us. On the same day as the Germany election, Austrians of the Upper Austria state headed to the polls to elect a new state parliament. As we discussed on the previous episode, 56 seats were up for grabs with centre-right ÖVP polling very much ahead of everyone else. Right-wing FBO polled at second place going into the election, but falling very much behind. And the centre-left SBO and Green Grüne were polling at third and fourth place going into the vote. This is pretty much what the result was in the end as well, with one big difference, and that is that the Liberal NEOS managed to make it in the parliament and the newly created anti-lockdown party, mentioned Freiheit Grundrechte, or MFG, managed to do very well. More specifically then, uh, in terms of the results, the centre-right OVP had a similar result to 2015, rising by one seat to 22. Right-wing FBO saw a decline of seven seats, receiving only 11 this time around. 
center-left SPO received exactly the same as in 2015, which uh, was 11. And the Green Party saw a small rise, receiving seven seats compared to the six it got in 2015. The Liberal NEOS did not rise a lot in its actual vote share, but it was enough to gain two seats in the new state parliament, while the anti-lockdown vaccine skeptic MFG that I just mentioned managed to receive three seats on their first try. Incumbent Governor Thomas Stelzer of the FBO announced that he plans to form a new state government as soon as possible and that he will discuss with all the parties that made it into the state parliament. So once again, stay tuned for developments there. On this Super Sunday, that of course Europolex was busy with, Portugal held its local elections with 308 municipalities and 3,092 parishes having elections. And what happened? Well, the centre-left Socialist Party managed to remain the largest party, electing 148 mayors, which is only losing about 12, uh, including, however, the mayorship of Fernando Medina in Lisbon. The centre-right PSD saw its numbers rise in general, though not significantly electing 114 mayors, a rise of 16 on 2017. Finally, for a second consecutive election, the left-wing CDU swung down, electing 19 mayors, five fewer than 2017, and of course 15 fewer than 2013. This election was set up as a significant test for Prime Minister Antonio Costa's legitimacy, and while the losses were few for the Socialist Party, he still handily controls municipalities across the country, though the loss of Lisbon has stung a little bit and is a bit of a surprise setback for the centre-left government. Keeping on with the plethora of electoral events held this last Sunday, but moving on to referenda, we start off with Switzerland, where the Swiss people have voted for the legalisation of same-sex marriage in a land mark vote. With 64.1% of voters supporting the yes option, the Marriage for All Act was approved and resulted in an amendment of the Swiss Civil Code, allowing LGBTQ people the right to marriage with the same rights as heterosexuals, meaning naturalization, joint adoption, and assisted reproductive technology. The turnout was at 52.6%, which is very high for Swiss referendums, and the yes option won across all cantons. This is significant since last year, there were some cantons that voted against retaining anti-discrimination legislation on homophobia, so there's been a lot of progress in just one year when it comes to these issues in Switzerland. At the same time, the polling was confirmed in another referendum taking place as well. And this relates to the 99% initiative that wanted to raise taxation on high capital income. Uh, it wasn't expected to pass and it did indeed fail to in the end, with a no option receiving 64.88% of the vote, winning across all cantons with 52.23% turnout. And while Switzerland is known for holding referenda, this Sunday also had a by-election for the upper house of the national parliament. In the constituency of Fribourg or Freiburg, the candidate of centre-right, the centre, Isabelle Chasseau, won with 62.7%, against the candidate of the centre-left Social Democratic Party, Green Ecological Party and centre-left Christian Social Party, Carl Axel Ridoré. The race was expected to be closer uh, since both candidates are heavyweights in the area, but in the end, Chasseau made it out with a very healthy lead. The seat was formerly held by Christian Levra, uh, who is the former president of the Social Democratic Party of Switzerland, uh, who decided to leave office to take over the National Postal Service of Switzerland as chairman of its board. Last on our Super Sunday list, we go to the south, where the microstate of San Marino held a referendum on abortion that we discussed a little bit last time. The referendum was championed, of course, by the Union of San Marinese Women, a feminist organisation. And with 77.3% of the San Marinese voters voting yes, the effort to legalise abortion has been successful. 
For the record, until the referendum, women had to travel to Italy in order to get an abortion, as in San Marino it's been illegal since 1865. It is worth mentioning that San Marino's largest party is the Christian Democratic Party, which holds close ties with the Catholic Church and opposes abortion, and yet the voting effort was still successful, and by some landslide. As for the motion, from now on, pregnant people will be able to terminate pregnancies within 12 weeks after the period abortion will be illegal only if the mother's health will be at risk or if fetal abnormalities would cause physical or psychological harm to the child. San Marino has been lagging behind on women's rights in the past, but this abortion referendum is, of course, a major victory for women's rights in the microstate. Now to some non-electoral news that we have been discussing throughout September as well, and I'm talking about the government crisis in Romania. The National Liberal Party's Congress took place on Saturday, and Prime Minister Florin Situ was victorious against former Prime Minister Ludovic Orban for party leadership with 60.2% of the votes. While that's a decisive win and a two-horse race, it does not seem to have stabilized the situation in the country at all, with Orban resigning as president of the Chamber of Deputies and the Minister of Agriculture and Rural Development, Nashita Azdian Oros, resigning as well. Also, the party was fined 10,000 lei, which is around 2,000 euros, for the way its Congress was organized amidst the pandemic. Now, as we talked about in our last episode, the Constitutional Court had postponed its ruling on the no-confidence vote against the government until after the National Liberal Party's Congress. And now that the conference has concluded, the court ruled that the no-confidence vote can go ahead and be debated and voted in Parliament. The Central FPSD uh, has, during this time, submitted a no-confidence motion of their own. So at the moment of recording, the PNL-led government of Florencito has two motions of no-confidence coming up against it at the same time. It's facing a very tough situation indeed in the parliament. And, uh, you know, by the time you're listening to this, it's a very much ongoing crisis. We'll probably have had another chapter, but we didn't want to leave an episode with the chance of being totally up to date. That's just... Too easy, isn't it? And that's all the news this time around. So thank you for listening and do stick around for our discussion with Tobias Gerhardschminke, our fearless Europelex leader. Hey everyone, if you like this podcast and want to help us grow, be sure to subscribe and drop us a review on whatever platform it is you're listening to us on. And of course, tell your friends, your fellow political nerds all about us. That would mean the absolute world. We love making this podcast and we love it when you guys love it. So if you've got an idea for a segment, thoughts on a topic that we should be covering, or even if you just want to say hi to us, drop us an email, podcast at europolex.eu. Hi, everyone. Today, we're happy to welcome back Tobias Gerhard Schminke, who, as most of you will know by now, is the founder of Europolex and also a huge German political nerd and academic. So welcome back to the podcast, Tobias. I very much look forward to discussing the German election results with you today, not just predictions, but actual results and, and happening since last weekend's election. How are you doing? I'm good. Hello, fellow nerds. Hope you're all doing well. <laughs> So what were what were the, the results in a nutshell and were there any of them that you were particularly surprised by overall? I think the opinion polling uh, in the lead up was relatively accurate. Yeah, I would agree. I, I wasn't surprised really by anything in, in this election. So we saw the Merkel party, the center-right CDU-CSU alliance uh, collapse by nine percentage points to the second position, which was taken by the Social Democrats. 
And the greens gained as expected from around 9%. They're now at 15. The liberals gained also a little bit, are there with 11 points. They gained one compared to the previous election. The right-wing AFD dropped by two points to 10%, and the left lost almost half of their voters to now 5%. So I guess the, the most impactful dynamic that's changed is that the center-left SPD is now the biggest party in Germany for the first time in a very long time. And praxis is that the leader from the biggest party will, will, will try to form a government based on that. I know during our last conversation, we, we talked through all the various coalition options. And in the end, quite a few of them uh, do have a majority in parliament now. But can you just talk through which ones are on the table with these results and uh, any sort of intel you might have from following a German media as to what's shaping up as being likely, even though I know we're at a very early stage of negotiations. Yeah. So very loyal voters of your podcast will remember that we uh, talked about all these different possible options uh, in our podcast episode before the election. And I'm not going to agonize you guys again with going through all of these because the picture has cleared up quite a bit. So from the coalitions we discussed last time, I would say only one of them failed to get a mathematical majority, which is the option of Social Democrats, Greens and the left. They fell short of a majority, somewhat surprisingly, but all the other options are theoretically still on the table. However, however it really looks like that the hit the Merkel party got um, makes it almost impossible for them to remain in government, which then leaves us with one realistic option, which is the traffic light coalition. And it's called traffic light coalition. It's named after the different party colors of the parties involved in these talks. And this would be the Social Democrats, the Greens, and the Liberals. And why is, is this most realistic? Uh, the center-right CDU CSU alliance of Angela Merkel and their chancellor candidate, Armin Laschet, lost so many votes that the population, as per opinion polls, supports that they go into opposition. Large parts of the party itself supports that they go into opposition. There's only really an isolated group around Armin Laschet, who's currently still trying to get the party into government. Um, but they are not as well positioned as the Social Democrats. And the Greens and the Liberals have been talking to each other after Election Day to figure out what they want before they're approaching now the Social Democrats and the Christian Democrats, which is going to happen over the next days. But I would really say if you had to put your money on one option, um, I would say 80% chance at the moment that this is going to be a so Social Democratic green liberal government uh, and i guess what's interesting now which which always happens is whereas the election campaign very much becomes focused on you know the chancellor candidates and who comes first i guess now more and more focus is on the greens and fdp the liberals to see what their demands are what they decide to do and what tactics they're they're using um if you're saying that you know this chances of Laschet and CDU, CSU being government is very slim. What what does that mean for the Greens and FDP? Because the Greens, I'm, I, correct me if I'm wrong, it seems to me that they're quite happy with uh, with SPD in terms of governing with them. Um, it's a bit more natural, whereas FDP uh, is a bit more firmly in the centre and they could have been more realistic kingmakers, right? So what does it mean for their position that 
uh, CDU, CSU is so weak at the moment. Yeah, so it's an uncomfortable situation for the liberals mostly in these uh, dynamics that are going on because they have less leverage and power to say, you know what, we're just going to bust these coalition talks uh, in some sort of move towards to getting moving the Greens towards the CDU-CSU alliance because as soon as the CDU-CSU alliance decides per majority or whatever dynamics they, they will be in place to move into a position, the Liberals are really stuck with either no government or the traffic light coalition. So it's, it's an uncomfortable situation, as you say, for the Liberals, because they have less leverage of just saying, hey, we're going to move to the center-right CDU-CDU alliance instead of working with you. And just in terms of history and, and coalitions in Germany, is there a precedent for this type of centrist center-left alliance ruling the country uh, or will this sort of traffic light coalition if it comes to pass be sort of a, a whole new dynamic for the country yeah so it would be germany's first traffic light coalition on the national level we did have a red green meaning social democrats and green government between 1998 and 2005 however the liberals were in opposition back then However, on the regional level in Rhineland-Palatinate, we do have a ample coalition or a traffic light coalition already in place, but it's relatively uncommon. And in terms of timelines uh, and negotiations, do you have a sense of how long they might be going on for? I know, you know, there, there's been talk of, you know, months and months and months, and that's quite common in, in Germany. But do you, when, by when do you think we can, we can have the, the new chancellor uh, in place? So at the moment, we're not even in the stage of official negotiations. So at the moment, we have some sort of pre-negotiations between the Greens and the Liberals, which will be kind of joined by the Social Democrats on the weekends and then the centre-right CDU CSU alliance next week. I have no idea how long that will take. Um, however, I would say we still need to wait at least uh, one or two months, if not even longer. I guess something to discuss as well beyond beyond the results is... Uh, the composition of the new parliament. So there, there are a few things that, that it'd be interesting to hear your take on uh, sort of what sets it apart from the last time. And I also know that it's the biggest parliament ever. So there's this interesting aspect where the number of seats in the parliament differs between each election. So it'd be good to sort of hear your, your thought. How does the, the intake and the composition, this uh, electoral cycle coming up differ from what we've seen in the last four years? Yeah, that's a very good question, because we have the second highest share of women in the parliament this time. It dropped to the lowest share since the 1990s in the previous election with the AFD for the first time entering the parliament and mainly bringing men into the parliament. But now this share spiked up uh, to 35%, which is the second highest share of women in the national parliament ever. And then we also have another interesting dynamic. We have the youngest parliament in many, many years. So I looked up Spiegel, which is a German magazine, and they have a timeline since 1990. And ever since 1990, we have not seen such young parliament. The average age of the MPs is at 47 years. And that is mainly because a lot of young people came in with the Greens and the Social Democrats. The average age with the Greens is at just 43 years, which for a generally very old country like Germany is pretty young. Um, so we'll, we'll see how the young people will change the parliament dynamics. 
And what about the size? So for, for more sort of electoral nerds, uh, did it come to pass that it is the, the biggest parliament ever in terms of seats? And did that have any effects? Oh, yeah, it is the biggest parliament we've ever seen. So in 2013, we had 630 MPs. In 2017, we had 709 MPs. And now we have 735 MPs. It's not as bad as we thought it would be as per our projections, but it's still pretty big. And now, interestingly, that Greens and the Liberals might come into parliament, we might see a change to the electoral code, which then could prevent the parliament from blowing up like this. And finally, what about the smaller parties so it wasn't a great night for them it was very much a um, a good night for the sort of the mainstream center left rather than any sort of uh fringe movements this time around i guess that's a trend in in a lot of countries at the moment but what would you say about the performance of the smaller parties was there anything sort of that you think has been missed in 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 the coverage coming out of the election if you like to be entertained and if you like drama and political tea, watch the AFD in fighting at the moment. We see that this right-wing party always had these two wings of the far right and the right wing, and they kind of always struggled with each other, who's controlling the party, and they kept their things together during the election campaign because they wanted to win, which they at the end did not. But now, after the election, all of this is kind of disintegrating and falling apart. So we had already quite dramatic scenes of the leaders fighting each other on stage verbally. Die Linke, the left, also suffered quite a bit, um, but they have been relatively calm, so there has not been much drama, I would say, ex at least publicly. And a last note on this, the SSW, the Danish Minority Party, did make it into parliament for the first time since 1949. So it's interesting how they are going to bring in their ideology and their ideas into parliament. They will remain independent in the sense that they're not going to join a, a group and will just remain as an independent formally uh, in the national parliament. Thank you, Tobias. This is very helpful sort of download of of what the outcome of the election was. Obviously, as you say, there's going to be a lot of very closely followed negotiations over the coming months before the European Union's biggest country gets a new government, which we're all obviously following very excitingly. Uh, and obviously at EuropeLex, we'll be covering that closely, as well as sort of any opinion shifts that happen because of how the negotiations go. But yeah, thank you and I uh, hope to have you back soon. Thank you for having me. Thank you for listening to the EuropeLex podcast. To stay up to date with European politics, make sure you subscribe. And of course, follow us on Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, LinkedIn, Telegram, and YouTube. We're spreading across as many platforms as we can. Uh, you can find us at EuropeLex.eu and at EuropeLex across all social media, except Instagram, where we're at at Europe underscore Lex. See you next time. You've been listening to the EuropeLex podcast, hosted by me, Ewan Healy, and my colleague, Gabriel Hedengren. The managing editor was Polychronus Karampalas. The script was written by our hosts and our writing team, Matthew Nicholson, Yorgos Kokoris, Guillaume Ferreira de Senda, and Yanis Arshakian. The music was by Jose Alvarado, and everything we do is possible because of our patrons on Patreon. Polychronus, I apologize. You'll have a lot of fun cutting this. <laughs>